What's up, y'all? It's me, Dez, and welcome back to another episode of the Creative Power Hour with Marcus Whitney. Today, we have an awesome show with a phenomenal guest who has dedicated her life to giving back to her community. And that is none other than Pat Shea, who is the CEO of Giftful, which is a company that uses technology to help nonprofits raise money and engage and connect with the community. Check it out. This is Marcus Whitney's Audio Universe. Like you gotta do the work. You gotta show up and just do the work. Welcome to another episode of the Creative Power Hour. I'm your host, Marcus Whitney, and today my guest is the protector, Pat Shea. Ooh, the protector. Yeah, I, I have to think about a name for all of my superhero guests. And uh, you you have many, many more hats that you wear, but that was one I just feel like that, that's that been a very big gift you've given to the city of Nashville. Thank you. Is you've, uh, you've cared for people well. I will collect and accept that. Yeah. Okay, you. good, 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 good. I'm glad that it was acceptable. Yeah. Um, I'm excited to, to, to have this conversation with you. We've... We've met in passing a couple of times and we had one really fun conversation about entrepreneurship, <laughs> yes. uh, which I'm excited that you have uh, taken the leap and are giving your talents to that world. Yes. Um, but uh, I am excited to hear about your origin story, how you got to be who you are. Sure. Well, that's a really interesting question because I'm still becoming who I am. This is true. But how I got to this one moment in time, which yeah. is delightful, is a combination of a lot of great luck and um i don't know i started i'm one of eight and that changes the way you view the world right wow because you know you're part of a system you never think you're kind of out there by yourself and so you function that way huh if that makes any sense that makes all the sense yeah. in the world so one yeah. of eight, we were a cluster we're very connected today it's really nice to have siblings that go from almost 70 to about 45 and they're my wow. they're my root system and so every time I've ever taken on a new adventure the fear that a lot of people might have wasn't there because I had that system of support wow grew up in Wheeling West Virginia school in Dayton Ohio and then came to Nashville when Nashville was really small yeah I think it was 81 or 82 okay yeah yeah so. yeah so what, what was it like growing up in West Virginia it was nice. Wheeling, West Virginia is a pretty small town. Everybody was a coal miner or steel mill worker. My dad was a steel mill worker. My mom and dad, uh, really traditional. Uh, dad worked, mom stayed at home. But the thing I think was different about our family is my mom and dad always talked about when we grew up and went away. Mm. There was never an idea that they wanted us to stay in Wheeling. Wow. And so the idea that we'd end up in the mines or we'd end up in a steel mill was far from my dad's desire. Did they grow up there and meet there? They grew up in Bolaire, Ohio, Wheeling, West Virginia. So yes, more or less. Okay. Okay. More or less. Yeah. And, and during that time, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I asked and thank you for sort of confirming their, you know, your dad's occupation. It's just sort of what everyone knows yeah. about West Virginia, right? It you know is. what I mean? The coal mines and the steel workers mm -hmm. and working class people, right? Yes. Um, what was... At that, what I don't have enough context for was at that time, how was that, what was the, the association with that job in America more mm -hmm. broadly? Like, was it, was it, you know, was it, 
trying to think of the, the, the right word. It was like, only a means to an end. Just a means to an His end. His job did not define him in the slightest. Okay, okay. So when he left at 8 o'clock in the morning and came back at 5 o'clock, he just went to make money. Okay. And from 5 o'clock until 8 the next morning and weekends defined who my dad was. Yeah, yeah. And our family. So That's kind of how my dad yeah, was as well. I, I, I feel like during that era, I, I'm not sure how, how old your dad is. My, my dad is uh, in his early 80s. I feel like there was an era where you went to work to take care of your own. Yes. And, but that did not define who you at were. All, right? At all. Our family defined us. Our church defined us. Yeah. Um, our education, schooling. So we were all, you know, it was a Catholic family. So it was yeah. very Catholic. Yeah. Spent a lot of time in church. Okay. And spent a lot of time. School was the most important thing in the world. And then we all got jobs really early. So I think my first job, well paper route, babysitting, so we would have been 12, 13, and then waited tables. So we always worked, which I kind of always enjoyed. Yeah. So when did you know where you wanted to go from West Virginia? Because, you know, if if your parents were always like, you know, when you get out of here, they didn't tell you where to go, right? They just said, when you go and... No, they didn't define where we went, but they did limit where we went. Okay. So they wanted, my dad was very particular that we'd be close enough that he could come get us if he had to. Okay. And that didn't mean an airplane. Yeah. That meant I could get in the car and come find you if I absolutely need you. Wow. Or if something goes wrong. Yeah. It was poor, it actually, it was probably more protective yeah. than it was controlling. Yeah. And so I picked uh, the University of Dayton, which was about four hours from my home. Okay. So it was far enough that I went away, but close enough that he felt fine. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. okay. And was there any uh, culture shock for you? I think just both in being away from your siblings, assuming none of your other siblings went there. No, not okay, until so after you, I was there. That's oh, right. Okay, so was there any culture shock for you, A, being away from your family, and B, going from uh, Wheeling, West Virginia to Dayton, Ohio? No, Dayton, Ohio is not that much different. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was nice. The thing I loved about it was the independence. I am extremely... Um, I have a phobia of being controlled. And so getting out from under my mom and dad, who were very controlling, was a delight. <laughs> and so getting to go to college, and I was great in school, and I was very responsible, and I had two or three jobs. So I couldn't do all that much to get in trouble, but I had the freedom. Yeah. I, could, I could run my own life. And I think I was looking for that my whole life, You know, getting out from under the structure of the church, the structure of my parents, yeah. the structure of a big family. When, when you... When you headed off to college, did you see that as the first step into your future career, or was that an, an adventure for an you? An adventure and more independence. I don't think I thought career. I don't think I thought career for quite some time. It yeah. was like, where am I going to go to make enough money to live the kind of life I wanted to live? But I wasn't thinking, how do I use my gifts that God gave me to make the world a better place Right, right. until later? Right. So until I even realized that was a possibility. Okay. So, but yeah, in college and leaving college, I actually left college and went up to Michigan and uh, went and lived in Flint, Michigan for about six months. Wow. So I wasn't even thinking post-college, how do I go where I want to be? I was thinking, how do I go where I can get a job? Yeah. Yeah. What was in Flint, Michigan for you? I actually had a job in an advertising agency, but I graduated in 81. So the unemployment rate was pretty high everywhere. Yeah. So just to get a job, I was kind of lucky. But I hated it, so I quickly moved to Atlanta and waited tables again. All right. <laughs> Waiting tables is always the way to transition. I could not agree <laughs> it's more. It's great transition. Yes. Job. So I didn't know we had that in common that we both waited tables mm-hmm. in Atlanta. I liked table waiting. I did too. Mm-hmm. Yes. I. 
I mean, I sometimes miss it, but not really. You know what I mean? Like, I don't miss my hands getting burned or my back hurting from, no. like, always carrying trays and things like or that. The but the smell of the kitchen. The smell of the kitchen. Uh. Um, or just the exhaustion or the days when you get stiffed on tips. Like, there's a whole bunch of things that I don't like about it. But there is a nostalgia yes. about, like, life was pretty carefree when I was waiting tables. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, and it was a, fun. It was connection. Yeah, it is connection. It was very uh, simple, pleasure, connection. Yeah. You got to take care of people, but yeah. it wasn't really, like commitment yeah right? that's right him from the beginning to the end of a meal that's right that's right <laughs> so, and i was good at it so i'd sold more desserts and alcohol than anybody at the restaurant in atlanta that i worked so. what was the restaurant <laughs> it was called the quality inn it was a restaurant inside of a hotel oh yeah 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 well i i think there's a lot of value that comes from working in service at all mm-hmm. and i think waiting tables is particularly mm-hmm. valuable because it's entrepreneurial because look you get that base pay two dollars or whatever i mean that's nothing you and you know that from mm-hmm. from jump it's like you got to get big tables you got to serve them you got to demand that your you know you, the rest of your team delivers uh in order for you to make money well and i think in service is the other piece to that yes. because you can slap food down on a table or you can wait on people that's right and i loved waiting on people that's right i really got joy out of having them find joy so i think that was one of the first times i did start to realize that what motivates me is my impact i can have on other people yeah even with how i put down that hamburger you know what's also kind of interesting this is, we're getting a little bit into the weeds but there is a nuance about waiting tables where you can talk too much Right. It's like, you know, you it, there is a just enough. Right. It's like show up when, you know, show up before they need you right before they need you. Mm-hmm. But don't hang out too long. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're there for unless they're by themselves or or they invite you yeah. to be a part of it. For but sure. like they're there. Don't with, join the table. Don't join the table. Right. You know what I mean? That's that's a, that, that's a pretty big lesson. And just sort of that 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 social IQ that you learn mm-hmm. sometimes the hard way that I, I find a lot of people don't have because no one's ever been forthright or told them that you know yeah, what I mean and, and like they're sort of missing those those cues that was like okay here's my time to enter the conversation here's my time to back out of the conversation the other thing is you get to meet all kinds of people and I loved that yeah I loved it's a safe way especially if you're you know 19 or 20 year old woman it's a real safe way to interact with all kinds of people yeah and not put yourself in harm's way but to learn and I loved you know, at, when I was in high school, I worked in a truck stop, and then I was in college, I worked in nice places. But just the variety that would show up, and the way they would behave, the way they'd parent, the way they'd eat, the way they'd tip, uh, their conversations. And so you do learn a lot about people when they're hungry. Yeah, yes. When they're, <laughs> when they're satisfied. So it's good education. Yeah, absolutely. So so uh, you were in Atlanta, waiting tables, the quality in, then what? I um, was working part-time. I was involved with a guy that was fabulous, and he took a job at Vanderbilt, so we moved to Nashville. Okay. And it was 82 or 83, so it was kind of a different time than it is now. Most of the times when I hear those stories, it's the other way around. It's the guy moves here for for the girl grew up here or she went to Vanderbilt or something, but you moved here for the guy. I did. Yeah. I did. And uh, I loved Nashville from the very beginning. Um, I had come here right after we had had, my father died early. My father died at 60. And so that kind of tragedy really made me want to get grounded. It made me want to be, sort of have a home base. In fact, I was telling someone the other day, my first job offer, this will be interesting because you love music, uh, my first job offer out of college was to be a VJ for MTV. What? 
and I turned the job down. What? <laughs> I guess I thought it wasn't going anywhere. I don't know what I thought. It was literally 35 days after my father died. I was interviewing in Atlanta. I went into this interview, and I didn't, at the time, I don't even remember comprehending what the job was, but it was at Warner Amex, and they kept calling me back and calling me back. I must have interviewed 10 times. They called me and said, you have the job. You're going on the road 99% of your life, and they offered me $22,000, and I just couldn't do it. It's I not a great offer. Well, but, but you'd ha- but, but you'd have to sort of understand, like, what it was. It was. And nobody really knew what that was going to be yet. Nobody really knew. No, 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 no. No, No. my son, who's 29, always says, if you'd have taken that job, you wouldn't have me. Yeah, that's right. And you'd probably have had a problem with cocaine. (laughs) (laughs) That's not true. But there was a lot of cocaine in in the California area during that time. Yeah, yeah. He's like, Mom, it probably wouldn't have been the best thing for you. Yeah. Maybe I got protected. Wow, that's a great story, though. I know, isn't that crazy? That's a great story. That's like... So, so what was what was Nashville like back then? Really conservative. Yeah. Uh, I came in and felt like an outsider. Hmm. So uh, I ended up marrying that guy, but I never changed my name. And I remember I'd walk around in Nashville and people would say, oh, this is Pat Glasser. She's married to him, but she didn't change her name. That would be the way people would introduce you. Or they'd say, you know, who's your daddy? Or what church do you belong to? Yeah. And that would be sort of the opening. And I wasn't used to that kind of Southern connection right so I I thought at that time Nashville was really small and conservative and um but it's it's just become so wonderful yeah you know it's really blossomed uh, maybe even a little too much but I've gotten to experience all of it so yeah I'm grateful that we got here when we did and I'm grateful that I'm still here so so then what then what so I um do you know David Furs David is a works at the Entrepreneur Center sometimes. Oh, yeah. As a yeah, yeah. He was my first boss. Oh, really? Here in Nashville. He was starting, and this is why I'm an entrepreneur. He was starting a market research firm, and I was his first employee. Oh, wow. So I worked for David for five years. Oh, wow. And he grew Small that world. company. I know. I, I love David. Yeah. He grew that company pretty rapidly, and I ended up leaving him and going to HCA. Okay. And turning around and hiring him because I went to work for another Ph.D., doing market research and we needed a field company got it and so I was I was at the HCA for about 10 years and basically ran kinds of consulting groups I started and ran different sections of consulting the whole time I was there were you in the HPG side of the business no I was in what was called um, it was called hospital quality trends okay and then it was called quality improvement management okay it was all focused on using customer feedback and improving systems through continuous quality improvement methods um, it was a great. Yeah, it's it pretty was awesome. A great ten years at HCA. That's pretty awesome. Ran three different consulting groups during that time, and just enjoyed the corporate structure, enjoyed all that that brought. But then left uh, HCA to start a, a company that was a physician practice management company focused on plastic surgery practices and dermatology practices. Wow! So it was another kind of entrepreneurial opportunity. So yeah. I keep I keep taking that step yeah. because I think I, like you, don't really want a boss and I like creating. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So uh, quick question. Who, who was, who were the CEOs 
during your tenure? I can't imagine it was one CEO for the whole 10 years, right? At HCA? Yeah. Oh, Tommy Frist. Tommy Frist was CEO uh-huh. then. Wow. Actually, my first couple years, Dr. Frist Sr. was there. Wow. He was, oh, he was delightful. And Tommy would have been less, younger than I am. So he was kind of a young man. Wow. It, uh, HCA was a lot of fun. So I bet back then I'm sure it was, it was like, like yeah I remember I mean I, I think I think for the people who are there now you know they're still having fun they're number one you know healthcare company in the mm-hmm. country and all that kind of good stuff but but that's inter- that's like you know you're getting into the to the History. fun times yeah. yeah 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 so I would be I remember a Sunday night I was traveling to go to Texas for a regional meeting and they called me at home and said don't go to the airport go to the private airport because Dr. Frist is going with you and taking everybody. So we flew on his plane. Wow. And uh, we all got on. There were only about seven or eight of us. And he came and he invited me up to the cockpit. So I had never been in a cockpit. All I kept thinking is, please don't let me throw up. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to throw up. And so we uh, got in the cockpit and he said, I can't talk to you till we take off. Um, And I just watched. And so we got up there and then I was like, tell me about all of this. And I didn't really understand how much he had how much experience he had as a pilot. Yeah. And he went on to explain that he was the only pilot on board the plane. I was like, how would I radio for help if something happened to you? Right. And so he was he was funny. He laughed at that. But he had a lot of hours of flying. So it was kind of wild that yeah. you could be working for a company, and then all of a sudden you're in the corporate jet with the CEO going to Texas. Yeah, well, in the corporate jet with the CEO who's flying. Yeah. And yeah. you're in the cockpit. Yeah, right. And you're the co-pilot. Yeah, and exactly. Thinking, That's I'm a, not sure this is the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. But it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I don't want to say plenty of people have been in the corporate jet with the CEO, but a good number. Mm-hmm. Very few have been in the corporate jet where the CEO was also the pilot. He, That's a very small number. Dr. Frist Sr. and Tommy Frist were delightful. And that would be like Jack Bowbender was there. Yeah, yeah, was yeah. He original guy. And it was really a lot of fun. Great time for learning. I learned a lot. Yeah. Can't even imagine. Mm-mm. I ended up staying at HCA till they sold my piece, and it became Quorum Health Resources. Okay. So I was at Quorum for the last couple of years. That was what I was wondering. Like, like where where did that consulting business end up? Mm-hmm. Like, what brand of today yes. did that end up being? So, so QHR. Yes. Okay. And so that was also quite a fun time because that was a startup. Yeah. Yeah. More or less. Yeah, and mm-hmm. has done. Yes. Those kinds of things so over, I left over time. So I left in 96, so it's, I've been gone a long time. Yeah. But then we did the practice management company for about three years. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you know anything about practice management, but the idea was that we would buy plastic surgery practices. Mm-hmm. About 80% were solo practices. Okay. So overhead was high. There wasn't a lot of efficiency. We would buy practices, um, both dermatology, plastic surgery, kind of create a medical spa. Yeah. But the practice management model blew up about year two or three into our venture. Mm. So Ficor and Med Partners were leaders and they tanked. They tanked because the valuation process was being really criticized. Yeah, yeah. So we went to bed and I think my Ficor stock was $36 and I woke up and it was $3. Wow. It It was not a good time to be in that industry. Wow. So our board called a meeting and Realized we would never raise another round of capital with the kind of model we yeah, had. And yeah. I learned when you take money from a VC, you cannot change your stripes. No. You are what you are That's that right. day that you're birthed. So That's right. We had to spend about six months and fly all over the country and close it down. So it was Wow. Not, and I, um, I remember I was my weekend on my 40th birthday. We were on the cover of the National Business Journal, and it said the only female-owned healthcare company shuts down. 
And I thought, I'm 40 wow. and it's over. <laughs> it's like I have wow. totally bombed. So it was, it was an interesting time. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, I think the terrible thing about that is it wasn't because of your own execution. It was because of funny business with the financial engineers, you but know, valuations. Startups right? are hard. The startups are hard. Not sure. Not a lot of them make it. But yeah. you're right. We were really doing quite well. Yeah. I mean, in that, in that case, yes. right, in that case, you know, when people find out people are overpaying for stuff, the corrections can be bad. Yes. Right. And I think a whole lot of money. A lot of people lost a lot of money, and we were really fine. And I learned, again, I learned so much. It was quite an experience. But it was really then that I decided to try nonprofit. And that was almost by accident. Yeah, I was about to say, like, I haven't yet seen anything along along this path that would have led me to... So I... um, I was going to take some time off, and I started volunteering. And I had really never focused on the community. I had been always traveling with Mm -hmm. HCA and then with Echelon Health. So I I would travel. I had a child. I had a husband. But I wasn't very connected to Nashville. And when I started volunteering, it was really apparent that nonprofits needed leadership, business leadership, and then someone that could raise money. And I found that both those things were pretty easy for me. So I went from a volunteer to like an executive on a leadership team, and I didn't even know it happened. And then the next thing you know, I was running nonprofits. I, so I can now that makes sense to yeah, me. Yeah, and it was fun. And the YW was, you know, the one I spent the most time at, and that was probably my favorite job ever in my whole life. So it was a good, it was a good turn of events. All right, so so let, let's go. Since the YW is not the only one, tell tell me the progression. So I was with Family and Children's Service. Okay, all for right. For just a while, Weezy Burgess was the CEO, but I went in as the development person and ended up running some programs and left there because I had been offered the position as the president of the Arthritis Foundation okay. for the state of Tennessee. Got into that job, didn't really like it. I just wasn't passionate about arthritis. Yeah. So, you know, you learn fast that if you're going to work that hard, it better be about something you care about. Yeah. And then the YW position came opened and uh, the mission, Eliminating Racism and Empowering Women. And I was like, I'm that, that is my job and I'm just going to go get it. Right. So it took a little bit of time. Um, but I sort of knew when I saw the ad, it was mine. That was back when they were ads. So tell, tell me a little bit about the history of the YWCA. Mm-hmm. Well, the Nashville chapter is probably 120 years old now. Wow. Um, so it's been around forever. And when I got in there, it was a little over 105 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's always been to serve women and meet the needs of the underserved in the community. But the underserved sort of change based on where we are and what we're doing. So when I got there, it was probably not as political or as much of an advocacy organization as we made it. And when I got in there, it was in a bunch of financial trouble. So I was really, for the first two years, just trying to turn it around. Mm -hmm. Uh, The largest expense was the domestic violence program. And our budget was maybe $3 million. So I was spending two-thirds of that just running a shelter and the mm-hmm. shelter was pretty dilapidated the services were kind of outdated uh, but the problem in Nashville was huge and this was back when domestic violence could be five to ten percent of the homicides in the city we wow. didn't have a very high homicide rate and so a large percent was being attributed to domestic violence so it was easy to get community support from the chief of police the mayor the head of the TBI it was, uh, it was it was an interesting time. Wow. 
I, I've had people ask me, because I really do think one of the things I did was turn up the volume for the issue of violence against women and girls. And mm -hmm. I've had people ask me how. And I think back then it wasn't as noisy as it is now. Yeah, no. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of communication today. Yeah. But back there, you know, the signal was clearer, was easier to get a message out. Um, what about the YWCA overall? Like what, you know, one of the things I've, I've been increasingly interested in is how a chapter, and in particular there's several Nashville nonprofit chapters that, I don't want to say they take on a life of their own, but they are very strong chapters, you yes. know, in terms of their relationship to the national orga yes. organization. Um, Girl Scouts of Middle Tennessee, mm -hmm. right? As an example, right? It's a very, very strong, strong uh, chapter, right? Yes. Um, where is the YWCA nationally, and what is the history there, and how how aligned are the missions of the of the Nashville YWCA with the national? Yes, one? I would say in my eleven years, I had very little to do with the national organization. Okay. Um, there wasn't a lot of support. The national organization changed leaderships pretty frequently. And I always felt like they tended to lead towards the bottom of the pack. So they were trying to figure out how to save the ones that were struggling. Got it. Versus help the ones that were doing well. Got it. And ours, I would say in my tenure at the YW, the YW locally grew stronger and stronger. And probably we were one of the most well-run, impressive uh, YW is in the system. Mm -hmm. But that's because this community embraced the work. Right. And because domestic violence was such an issue for the city. And back then, I don't know if you remember Mayor Dean, it was a huge initiative for Mayor Dean. He did an 18 month study of from a DV call to uh, when that person ends up in, in court and looked for every flaw in the system and put a lot of resources, revamped the DA's office, trained the Well, he had that officers. background to be able to understand he that did. the system could be really he screwed did. up around that stuff and, mm -hmm. and that that was a, an audit trail to really dig into, it you was. know what I mean? Just his background. All kinds of stuff. Yeah. So good, a lot of good work and I was sort of, sort of riding that initiative and riding the, I think, the breaking waves that ended up being the Me Too movement. Yeah. But you know, there was a whole lot of us working under cover and behind the scenes to try to push through this issue of violence against women and girls because it was not being talked about at all yeah i know it, it 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 wasn't being talked about i mean can we talk a little bit about the fact that it wasn't being talked mm -hmm. about and just sort of what is behind it not being talked about because i don't get the sense that um we have somehow magically grown more men who care about the issue? I, I want to talk about it from the men, from yes. the man perspective, not the woman perspective, because sure. I, I have to assume women have always known about this, and uh, yeah, you know, there hasn't been issues around not talking about it, denial of it happening, or any of that kind of stuff, right? Um, I know that awareness is something, but I, but I don't I don't feel like somehow the the ratio of good men has like increased significantly. So what was behind? you know, from your seat, what was behind the not talking about it for so long? What, what was, were, were, were people protecting people? Like what was, what was going on? Yes. And I think there's some of that was happening. So I, um, 
I was wondering, as I every year spent $2 million to run that shelter, how was I ever going to stop domestic violence? Like, I got into that mindset mm -hmm. of, like, how, what is the problem and how do you stop it? Mm -hmm. And I met a guy named Dr. Jackson Katz, and he said to me, you have got to make it a men's issue. When you get men to accept responsibility for their behavior, when they care about domestic violence, that's the only way it's going to end, which is why I started what's called what was called MEND, and it was engaging men to reduce violence against women and girls. And I would tell you for 18 months, I went around the city and I interviewed high-ranking men in the community, preachers, businessmen, political guys, to try to get them involved. And I would sit down and I could assess a guy in about 10 minutes in where they fell in the spectrum of their thoughts about women and violence. And a good guy would be, you would know right away. They, mm -hmm. would, they would be like, oh my gosh, that happened to my sister. She got raped in college. What yeah. did I do? Right. Then there was this guy who's a really good guy, just totally unaware. Like, I never knew. Yeah, okay. That I can accept that. Yeah. I can accept that. Then there was the guy who didn't know, I don't think really cared, wasn't going to be an advocate. That wasn't going to be something he stepped into. Then, can, can, we, can we talk about that guy yeah. real quick? So we're talking about violence against half the population. Mm -hmm. um, why would this be something that that person wouldn't get involved in? Like, what, 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 was, what, what was behind that? Before we move yes. into the next category, which I, I get a feeling we're headed towards the bad guys. Yeah. But like, what, what's in there, like the, the, the guy who's going, who makes a decision to be apathetic about something like this? Number one reason is I don't want to be associated with it. If I with the step topic? into that space, they will think I'm a batter. It will be seen as my problem. Okay. I can't take that on. I run this organization. I have to be about feeding the hungry. This is kind of like a dirty little secret. And if it looks like it matters to me, people will question why. So, I think that's a generational thing. It probably was. I think that's a generational mm -hmm. thing. I don't think most people, I'll just use my age as the cutoff, my age and younger would respond that way. It, I, I could be completely wrong. Right. I could be completely wrong. I probably, I would not disagree with you. I think that was number one. Another issue was I don't believe you. Yeah, now that's different. Mm -hmm. That's a different thing. Yeah. One is sort of I need to protect myself because the world is an ugly place, and I want to do the right thing, but I could I have too much to lose. I'm not saying that's right, but I'm saying that's one yeah. thing. The and other thing is I don't believe you, which is a different thing. Well, and I think a lot of men were unaware, and so when you start to say your daughter has a one in five shot of being raped in college, they're like, no way. Yeah. And I'm going way. Yeah. I mean, that's what's happening today. Yeah. And so I remember I had a conversation with a pretty prominent leader after the rape, Vanderbilt rape case. And I was saying to him, my understanding of that situation is there was a group of women that were entertaining those football players that had come in for recruiting. And he's like, Vanderbilt would never do that. And I'm like, I think it's in the paper. And I think it's happening in every college campus. And I think what happened to Vanderbilt's happening in every college. And he was like, it was her. There's, this is not a pattern. This is not systemic. This was one incident, and it was just a bad situation and miscommunication. You know, he was just shutting it down. Hmm. There was no way he was going down that path with me. Hmm. And I don't know if it was because he completely had no experience in his lifetime or if it was just something he didn't even want to think about. Yeah. So who knows?
Who knows? Yeah. The next group yes. don't like women. So there are men who don't like women. There are women who don't like men. Sure. But there are sure. men who don't like women. And then my last group were the batters, the rapists, the ones that, you know, it was there. And that's a small population. It's yeah. not a very big group. Right. It's pretty tiny. But there's some kind of evil folks you can run into out there. So a little bit of math work. So if, in fact, it is a small group that is perpetrating this, but we have such high numbers, is that small group repeat offending? Is that sort of the idea here, that they are perpetrating against multiple women? Yes. And so they're, the damage they're doing is not one-to-one, it's one-to-two, or one-to-three, or one-to-four, mm-hmm. one-to-five. So it's been a while since I've looked at the statistics, but they would say a college rapist would rape seven times before he'd be caught. Wow. And the system around him would hide him. You know, it was part of the culture to not speak up if he was walking a drunk girl out the door. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the repeat offenders, women say all the time, the best way to get rid of a batterer is he finds someone else. Mm. So, yeah, it's it's that kind. And I never believed, I mean, I always thought it was probably less than 5%, 7% of the population that were actually physically, you know, abusive. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that would be today, but I always thought that it was it was really a small percent. Now, as you go down the continuum of, you know, sexual assault and um, bullying or domestic violence on one side of the continuum and maybe sexual harassment on the other, it gets to be a larger audience. I would imagine that. Yeah. That makes sense. Population training. Yeah. Lack of knowledge. Yep. Yep. So it was interesting. So what we did at the YW is we really did pursue male leaders for whom this was an issue. And it was an issue for Chief Anderson because Chief Anderson's a great guy, but also because he was dealing with homicides related to domestic violence. Yeah. It was an issue for Carl Dean because of his DA's experience. Yep. And he saw it as a, I think half the police calls are domestics. Goodness. Are you serious? I think it's an outrageous number and it's such an expensive thing. Yeah. So I think, you know, if you're running a city, you'd be looking at all those kinds of things. But then you have leaders like Sean Henry, who's the president of the Predators. It's just his passion. I mean, he, he believes that violence against women and girls should end. And so he's working on it, not because of his position with predators, but because of his position as man in his heart. Right. So, right. So we tried to find men like Shane Foster, who is amazing. Yeah, he's amazing. The work he's doing. Yeah. So it was fun. So how long were you at the YW? 11 years. 11 years. Left, um, I think it was 18 or 17, December. And uh, that was a hard transition. That was a really hard transition. Going back to sort of figuring out how to do work differently. Yeah. At the YW, I became the YW. You certainly did. Yeah. And you, so, you, you were synonymous with it, uh-huh. for sure. So you, you use all your physical existence to achieve, you know, it's kind of a push yeah. versus a pull. Yeah. And um, um, I think during the YW years, I really wasn't focused on internally, how do I create more energy I was mm. using my personality and my force of being yeah. to make the YW happen yeah so it was kind of nice yeah, to that, step yeah away. That, that same personality that could have been a VJ on MTV <laughs> that <laughs> was, yeah that would have been a different life wouldn't it so but the YW is a great organization you should go volunteer there do you ever do anything with the YW I don't they have some great take, talk to Shane he'd put you to work in three seconds I know he would I know mm-hmm. he would yeah. Yeah. It's been fun to watch that program grow. 
Yeah, he's doing a great job with it. Yeah. He's doing a really great job with it. So, so you left because you, why did you leave? I don't want to say why you left. I, I know you've started something new and mm-hmm. I know what it is. We'll talk about it in a second. I know you started something new and I know you learned something in your overall nonprofit career. Yes. Um, but maybe let's just ask the question. Why did you leave? Do you ever have that feeling when you're done? Yep, absolutely. Okay. okay. So I was done. You're done. I had set some goals, and one of my goals was to get our net assets to $10 million. And I had this idea that I could leave the YW with enough cash that no one could ever do what had happened before. Um, you just, I was done. It was like I didn't wake up in that thought of, I'm so joyful, I'm going to work. Yeah. Uh, even our events. I mean, hi, you know, you're on stage in front of, 1300 people and I'm thinking when's this going to be over (laughs) you Uh can't pull that off for long no so I'm good at knowing when I'm done and I'm good at leaving before I start to break down what I built yep and um that makes all the sense in the world so and then you I couldn't really leave the YW and just go to something else that wasn't going to be a transition that worked for me so I took a oh probably a year and a half where I did only what I wanted um work with a group of women CEOs so I facilitate a it's called the Women's Presidents Organization. So I continued to work with them. I went on Studio Bank Board. I did some consulting with some nonprofit leaders. I did a lot of traveling with my husband who retired. Uh, it was nice to kind of break away and figure out who I was. Yep. With not that position or that title. Yep. And that journey continues, right? Yes. <laughs> that journey continues. Yes. As long as you want it to, right? Yeah. Well, you know, some people sort of say, Okay, that's it. You know, I am who I am. I'm just going to, I'll be in my bedroom laying up watching TV. I mean, you know, it, it is a choice, I think. I think it's I a choice it to is. continue to, to seek out the next adventure and to enroll well, in the next adventure, you know, because it's, it comes with risk and it comes with, you know, the potential for failure and it comes with work. And, you know, some people don't want to enro- re-enroll. So, <laughs> you know. And figuring out who we are is, I think, a life journey. Yes. And I do think some people decide that's not a journey they want to pursue. Yeah, exactly. So, exactly. Um, but I, I actually wrote a business plan for my life and worked for about a year to write a mission statement because I didn't want to pursue something that wasn't core to me. Mm-hmm. And I had a couple people really fun people call on me and say, hey, I've got this idea. I know what you need to do. One person said, let's make you the female Nashville Tony Robbins. And all I could think about is I don't want to be that. Yeah, right. You know, that just like was not, I had to get on stage at the YW because that was part of my job, but that's not, that doesn't call me. Right. Or I talked to someone else and they were like, you would sell houses like other people, you know, sell ice cream. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, and sure. I, and I, was just I could see both of those things, mm-hmm. but I could also, not I could, but I do not see you wanting to do those things. No, and they would both be probably really lucrative. My neither, son is neither in real one of them, He loves it. But neither one of them are a purpose. And I think that's it for They're me. an opportunity, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Um, that is true. And so when I wrote my own mission statement, it came down to, I want to help people who help people. I don't, and this is just funny. I had this conversation this morning, helping others help others 
is really clear to me that it, I'm not the direct service provider. Yeah. Like, I am not the person who would handle all those DV cases. Right. I was the person who'd be looking for ways to improve the situation so that we could handle more cases. Yeah. Build a better shelter, yep. raise more money, change a law. Yep. But the actual direct service has never been my personal calling. Yes. And so looking for an opportunity where I really thought I could impact people who were giving their lives to doing good which is how we got to Giveful, which is how we got to the company that I'm currently the CEO of. Awesome. And Giveful is? Yeah, Giveful is a um, innovative workplace volunteering and giving platform. It's using technology to improve workplace giving and volunteering so that nonprofits can have access to more resources at a less cost than they're experiencing currently. So it's very expensive to fundraise. I don't think people realize how much money of the actual dollar that a donor gives makes it to the charity. Is, the, is there a sort of industry standard number there? Well, it depends on what you're talking about. You know, one standard is if you put on an event, you should be taking 75 cents to the dollar, you know, and giving it to the charity. But no one's counting labor. Yeah. You know, it doesn't really. Right, right, right. And we know there are stories of some really big events in Nashville that didn't make any profit yeah. for the organization. But it was a high-profile event, and it got support for the organization. So events are costly, but even just a capital campaign or a normal, you know, if you gave me $100 at the YW, I spent $100 trying to keep you engaged. Yeah, so it's, totally. So it's very expensive. Yes. So the, the idea of using technology to raise money and keep that cost down is very attractive to me. The other thing, and I would tell you probably this motivated me more than anything, engaging people, letting people experience firsthand the feeling of giving and volunteering that is just huge for your health mm -hmm. and for your well-being and totally. your spirituality. And I sometimes feel like we believe that only the wealthy get to be philanthropists. And I think all of us have the right and should be invited to the table to give to our human race, to give it to mankind. And so technology really does democratize philanthropy absolutely because five dollars a pay period is a lot of money if a lot of people are doing that that's right and if you can transact your cents on the dollar it's really great so that's kind of the space giffles in we're providing technology to companies so they can engage their employees improve retention improve employee engagement by letting the workforce give and receive during their work day and not even controlling where the money goes that was the other thing you know, my generation, we gave money. I didn't even ask sort of where it went. I mm -hmm. just did what I was supposed to do at HCA. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we sort of morphed into, well, these are the charities that are worthy. Mm -hmm. And today I sort of say, you're smart. You can pick your charity. My job is just to make that transaction easier, faster, better. Got it. Yeah, wh what I loved when we first talked about this was that you, I had to take it on your word that this was a real problem because you had more than a decade of leadership experience in a nonprofit, right? Because, yes. you know, normally when I'm talking to a startup founder and they've created a piece of technology, shockingly, like they never worked in that industry. Oh, like yeah. most of the time, and, and just to not make too much of a wild statement about this, let's just say it's more than half the time they've never worked in that actual role, yes. right? Okay. And so immediately I have to start going through the list of, well, have you heard of this solution? Have you heard of that solution? Blah, blah, blah. 
And I have heard of different solutions. Obviously, I've sat on a couple of nonprofit boards, and you know, I've, I've looked at, I've been asked to look at the technology from a due diligence perspective, and, um, but I didn't even have to ask you those things because I, I just was able to skip mm-hmm. past that and sort of say, yes, she does know about all of them. Mm-hmm. She has experience working with all yes. of them, and she knows exactly what the problems are with all of them. Right. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I didn't even need to ask you those things, and we just got to talk about. Okay, what yeah. what are you doing different than what I kind of already know yes. is is in the space, which was cool. It is you know? cool. It is cool, and I think our real goal is to raise new money. So you know, I don't want to circumvent old money or money that's already getting to charities. Yeah, I want to create new money. Yeah, and I think when you can take someone like a Hal Cato, let's use him as an example. Yep. When I was running the YW, I probably spent fifty percent of my time raising money. So let's say he's doing something similar, but if he could take a break, if we could give him more resources. Think of what he could do for our community. Yeah, and for our listeners who don't know, he's the CEO of Thistle yes, Farms. Yeah, that's right. Or Becca Stevens, or you know, any one of the many right. fabulous nonprofit leaders right. we have in this community. Right, R- running running really really mm-hmm. high quality operations, mm-hmm. right? That are clearly making impact year over year. Yes. Have ambition to grow that impact. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So we make the charity the stakeholder. The charity is the reason we exist, and when we are successful, it is because we have transacted money to them that they wouldn't otherwise have received and they have received it without having to work for it Mm -hmm. but only to use it for the work they're doing right that would be the ideal world you know the other thing that is uh that i liked about this was you thought about this not just from the nonprofit's perspective but also from the giver's perspective and i know you understand that as well like you've raised money but you also are giver Mm -hmm. and there are some industries that it is just shocking how far behind the times they are on technology. Mm-hmm. Healthcare is one of them, right? I mean, we have health and wellness technology that's actually incredible. I mean, I'm wearing like a sleep tracker heart rate ring here. So like, you know, as a consumer, you can buy things, but in terms of your interaction with the healthcare system, the technology is abysmal, right? right. I mean, like there's no good, I don't want to say no, there's very little technology that meets where we are because it's 2020 and the things that we're able to do in almost every other aspect of our life our banking our grocery shopping are just like you know incredible right yes the nonprofit space is in in that bucket right it's in that bucket of like this is terrible yes it's still really bad Mm -hmm. to give to a nonprofit i still I'm mostly being asked to go to events and I'm going to less and less events, right? Yes, like, like are... it's not even the money. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the time. And also it's the premium that you're paying for the expense of the event. It's, it's like, I'd rather not go to the event and just write you a check. Yes. I don't have the time. I can't go to this many dinners or breakfasts or whatever. How much chicken can you eat? Uh, right. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Seriously, I, I was guilty of or this. aluminum foil quiches or whatever, right? You know what I mean? Like, I how many of those things can I? And I don't need for you to put your stories on stage. I get it. I already know. I already know what's going on here. And that worked at a time for a time. Yes, that was innovative. Yes. at a time. Yes, and today that's not. No, it is not. And what I kind of think is neat about Giveful from a technology perspective is once it's in place in a workforce. You can go to your landing page at any time 
and see how much you've given, how much you volunteered, and make a contribution. So, you know, you run into your buddy and he said, I built a Habitat house. And you go, I'm gonna send you 25 bucks. Or I'm just having a bad day, let me make a donation. That makes me feel good. Yeah. And so that, you know, that immediate ability to respond and react when you see a charitable need, right. I think is just critical. Yeah. And so donors need, I, especially younger generations, they need the immediate opportunity, they need the immediate response. And then the other thing we've built in is a social media feed. So if we were working together, I would see what you did. Yeah. I would see where you gave, I would see where you volunteered, not the amounts, right. but I would have, it's that social connection. Totally. So yeah. I think we did sort of plan it with the donors in mind and also the employers. Employers are struggling with retention and engagement. And people like my son are coming to work saying, I will work for you, but tell me what you're doing for the world in which I live. Right. And he wants that dialogue. I, I asked him one day if he um, liked feedback and he said, I really love giving it. You know, <laughs> God, what did I raise? So, you know, now a kid goes into an employment opportunity and says, I want to influence the charity you support. Right. That's a very different subject or a very different conversation. It is. Another trend that I see, and I, I'm excited about this going back to the events. It was typical in my career that a large organization would fund some elite events that a few of its leaders would get to attend. And now you see those pockets of money being distributed to the workforce as matching dollars. And so I was just talking to an organization. Yeah, and they're saying, yeah, everybody that works here gets at least $200, maybe $500 a year to give to the charity of choice, and we're no longer doing that golf tournament. And you think, wow, I mean, that's not rocket science. No. But it's brilliant for building culture. Yes. And it is, you know, the right way to distribute philanthropy. Right. Again. So you've had a really successful career in several different areas. This is a new one. Mm -hmm. It's a technology company, yes. right? Um, what have you learned? Technology is... Um, well, it's hard because it's a whole different language. Yeah. But there are people who know that. Yep, that's and, right. You know, Sada Garba, who works at uh, Giffel's Brilliant. And so what I've learned from him and what I've learned about what we do, it's beautiful, the creativeness of it. Mm -hmm. And I can't comprehend how his mind works, but I am the beneficiary of it every single day. Yeah. So I don't ever feel like I have to master the technology. Yeah, you I'm don't. I'm sort of the interface between the outside world and what those guys are yeah. building. You're making sure that this, the technology, like the time and energy and brilliance is being spent building yes. the right thing the right way. Yes. That's your gig. The other thing about technology is time flies. So when we got into this space, when Walker Morrow got into the space, this space was empty. And today, every time I turn on something, you see another provider doing maybe something a little different. But it's in the space. But it's like the same with construction. It's the same with, I just met a guy the other day who's doing farm tech and fintech for farms. And he was fascinating and I really enjoyed learning all about his business. But all of a sudden, the application of technology to the transfer of money in the farming business is huge business, right? So the world of technology moves quickly. It does. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. But it's fun. It is fun. That's awesome. How, how, how do you feel about doing a technology company in Nashville? 
What's, well, what's, what's that I don't have like? anything to compare it to. Yeah. Um, we are in a capital raise right now. We're just starting a capital raise the last month or so. And really, most of the interest we've had has been out on the West Coast. Yep, makes sense. So we've gotten, uh, we did a first round of capital, which we got from friends and family. Sure. But this is sort of going for some big dollars, probably $5 million, Yeah. Maybe a little more. And the only place that really is interested is Seattle and the West Coast. Makes sense. The conversations here are, what's your revenue today? Yeah, that's right. And we, you know, our revenue that's, today is... Yeah. You know, your, your, your early stage technology mm-hmm. company. Yes. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how we pull all this off. I'm very optimistic. We have Giffle 2.0 coming out in a couple of weeks. We have a campaign that we're going to run around that. We've been talking to two or three VCs out there that seem very excited about what we're doing. So it's going to be fun to watch the next six months. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm excited. I get excited. I'm excited about it too. And we'll have to schedule another coffee just to kind of catch up. And Well, you know, it's the right thing at the right time at the right place. Yeah. It's exactly what I'm doing today. So how could it not be? Yeah. that's. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I'm, I'm going to steal that. Yeah. That's a, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. So um, any final thoughts for our listeners and viewers? You know, the, the people who tune into this, they're, they're looking to... They're looking to be inspired through other people's stories and what those people have, have learned uh, sort of on their own journeys and how they might be able to apply those things. Um, as you're continuing to figure out who you are, yes. right? Um, what's, what's sort of top of mind for you right now in terms of like wisdom that's really pulling you along? Abundance. So, and I think I learned this when I learned to fundraise. When I first started fundraising, people would say, oh my gosh, how do you do that? That's just so awful. And there was a moment when it flipped in my mind that when someone made a gift to the YW or wrote a check to me, that I actually did them a favor. Yeah. And um, that everything I needed, if the work of the YW was the work I was to do and the work that the world needed me to do, then the money would show. And it did. It always did. I found people who wanted to support the initiatives that we needed to to pull off so you know if you're talking about revamp i remember the the stock market you know it was like 08 when we had the oh yeah oh yeah our shelter hadn't had any repairs in 10 years and i was talking to a guy saying you should see this place it's awful and he went with me and he offered me twenty five thousand dollars and by the end of our journey together he wrote me a check for a million and we renovated the shelter wow and this was when you wouldn't think but it wasn't me it was he had a vision. Yeah. It connected to something he needed to do. And when I got the check, the person who delivered it cried and said they had never been part of something so important to themselves. So what I've learned about abundance and giving is it really when you give, you just receive. And there's so much out there that when you need it, just be open to it. And if it's what you're supposed to get, it'll come your way, right? That's a huge yeah. lesson. Which is why Giveful matters, because Giveful lets everyone be connected yeah. using technology. Yeah. And if we need one thing today, it's people connected more frequently, easily, and in a kind of In real ways. In a loving kind of way. In a real nice way. way. Yeah, in a real way. So I think giving and volunteering are really very good for your heart and your spirit cannot agree more thank you that was fantastic parting wisdom i appreciate it well, and I appreciate uh you. yeah and we'll have to bring you back on the show like once you're done with this raise and and, and the company's up and running and super successful and you can give us some more lessons oh i would appreciate that thank you sounds great till next time peace thank you for tuning in to marcus whitney's audio universe